um, and as such, it's always, I think, um, useful for us to go back to the beginning, go back to the very basics, and to re-examine those basics again, because it's in a sense re-examining our motivation about why we're doing what we're doing, why we're going through this whole process, which sometimes, I don't think it strikes me, can seem quite ludicrous of actually walking extremely slowly, looking like a zombie. And, <laughs> and other times, just sitting here in kind of cross-leg situation, or sitting on a meditation floor, <laughs> on a chair, or whatever, it often strikes me as quite ludicrous. So I think we have to examine why we're doing what we're doing, and I think it's very, very good for us to do this every time we enter into a retreat situation in particular. Now, in examining the basics, it means going right back to the beginning, right back to things such as the so-called Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Path, and Dependent Origination, and all these facets. And unfortunately, it's not a tick list. You can't just say, well, Four Noble Truths, done that one. <laughs> done the Eightfold Path, you know, and just tick them off. Um, it's not that way at all, because these are all tools for inquiry. And I think this is made very, very explicit when we actually hear the proper translation of what is known as the Four Noble Truths, because actually they're called... Out of all possible translations, let me just backtrack a second, out of all possible translations, Four Noble Truths is about the worst possible out of it. Um, they're actually the Four Ennobling Truths. They're the truths which ennoble one through inquiry into them. So in other words, they become process rather than statements or propositions. I think it's very useful for us to hear that because the statements of propositions, they seem to be something that we perhaps have to sign up to and subscribe to. Oh yes, I believe that there is such a thing as suffering, um, I believe there is a cause of suffering, and so on and so forth. And let's dismiss that because it's complete nonsense. Um, what we need to do is see them as tools for inquiry, and the inquiry starts with the idea that we can be ennobled by inquiring into the causes and conditions of something which appears to be extremely prevalent in not just the human condition, but all conditions of sentient creatures. That condition is the one which um, is a word actually in its Pali Sanskrit form I'd like to become naturalized for meditators. Um, because the word suffering simply is an inadequate translation of it. Um, the word dukkha, which is a Pali Sanskrit term, means a huge variety of things, an enormous variety of things, all indicating, as I suggested last night, some degree of unsatisfactoriness. Yet, unsatisfactoriness, I don't know if that strikes you, it's always strikes me as a slightly flabby word in English, and a word with not much bite to it. Um, and what we have to hear in terms of dukkha, this term, is everything that is not delivered to us that we would want in this world. Yeah, we look for happiness, perhaps, we search for some degree of calmness, satisfaction, and instead what we find is dissatisfaction. Now that's not because we're bad people at all, none of us are. It's that we're not very adept or very useful in our ways of inquiry, of actually trying to find happiness in this world. 
what we tend to do, what we do almost continuously is mistake that which is not going to deliver for something that's going to deliver happiness. So in other words, we misplace it, we search for it in the wrong places, we put our trust in things which are untrustworthy. We act extremely unskillfully as a result. And so this word dukkha has the connotations of everything from minor dissatisfactions and irritations to misery, to anguish, to depressions, to out-and-out suffering across the whole spectrum, from the minutiae of life's irritations, um, which are actually the predominant ones for most of us. Um, I often look at audiences like yourselves and, you know, and meditators like yourselves and think to myself, have I actually described and I said to you in a kind of pose phase, you're all suffering. <laughs> you might say something like, well, actually I'd rather not be here, or I'm feeling rather uncomfortable, or my mind's all over the place. Um, but suffering doesn't really fit the bill, it's something in between. It's often just this kind of sense of dissatisfaction, this sense of irritation, this sense of feeling uncomfortable, and so on and so forth. And so we have to get over this idea that it is always suffering. The suffering is such a loaded term. And what the Buddha was trying to indicate, that actually the state of dissatisfaction is almost written into the way that we approach our lives in our ordinary everyday sense. Because we misplace our search for happiness, we misplace, for example, again, touching on the theme of the whole week, we misplace um, our search for happiness in terms of permanence, when all the world will deliver to us is impermanence, then, in a way, we're always bound, in some sense, to be dissatisfied. In other words, we look for something which simply isn't there. We look for an illusion. We look for a chimera something which isn't there in life at all. Our thoughts don't remain the same as I suggested last night. Nothing of anything, any phenomena that we see does not remain the same. And with the emphasis here on the same. So dukkha is the condition which in a sense we begin our exploration from. And we can only begin that as a recognition, in a sense almost um, that there is a problem here, and in a sense that's where the Buddha started. He basically said, you've got a problem. <laughs> um, and this problem is dukkha, and do you want to do something about it? Um, and therefore the inquiry begins with the recognition of that problem, and therefore the inquiry into the causes and conditions, how it happens. So a tremendous amount of time is spent actually beginning to palpate the problem actually beginning to see the delineations of the problem rather than just being told you are suffering. <laughs> you know, that's not good enough. It's actually to see how it arises, how it comes about, because only seeing it in its, all its occurrences and the way that it happens can we actually do something about it. So in other words, it's again, as I suggested last night, this injunction for us to wake up to actually begin to see clearly, rather than through some kind of miasma, or through simply being fast asleep. The word dukkha itself, and I'm not going to do much of this over the week, but I think it's interesting for those, I know some of you have heard it, but for those of you who haven't heard it, the word dukkha itself is interesting. 
you've got the, the original etymological form in the original language is composed of two parts dukkha, which means unhappy um, du itself means unhappy or unpleasant ka means something like a space so it's an unpleasant or unhappy space it also has the connotation of the word du being dirty actually as well so what we find ourselves in is an unpleasant space or a dirty place. It also referred to, um, in ancient Sanskrit, it also referred to the hole in a wheel into which the axle fitted, which was packed with dirt and grease and grit, and it went round. <laughs> um, and I think that's a beautiful description of what happens in most of our ordinary everyday situation. It comes round again and again and again and again. Not in their identical form, in a different form. So there's a constant kind of friction to life. And that's what we're exploring, that friction, and how to operate smoothly. That friction goes under another name, um, a name again probably most of you are familiar with, called Sangsara. Um, Sangsara is a condition the condition under which we're operative, which is dominated by dukkha. Sansara, world, the word itself literally means to go round in circles. Um, so that's one of the situations that we find ourselves in an ordinary daily life with a, with a horribly present sense of deja vu. You know, actually experience things again and again and again and again and again. Uh, and in a sense, that is a very, very powerful indication of one aspect of what it means to be reborn. To be reborn again and again and again and again and again into similar situations, similar, notice I'm not saying identical, but similar situations, all with an attendant feeling tone to them. And that's that feeling tone of friction, or of dissatisfaction, or unhappiness. However, the paradox is, as you heard me almost say earlier on, is that actually what we're searching for is something called happiness. Um, the Dalai Lama makes it very clear in nearly all of his talks, for example, he says that all beings aim at one thing, which is happiness. Now, however we might interpret that, again, it's a strange word, I often find the word happiness, whether we interpret that in terms of peace of mind, of tranquility, of stillness, whatever it is, we all search for something which approximates to something perhaps we would use by the word happiness. The sad part about it is we're not very good at finding it. Um, and this is the condition that we find ourselves in. So instead of producing happiness for ourselves, what we end up finding ourselves in is in states of, again, dissatisfaction. We often go out into the world in a day intending to produce something good out of it, but screwing up somehow on the way. Um, we go out with the very best intentions, but you know, best intentions often lead to rather strange results, simply because we're not very skillful. And the most, I think, succinct definition of the whole of the Buddhist path, well, I think, is within a phrase within the Dhammapada, which is actually the most translated of the Buddhist text. In the Dhammapada, it really says, states very clearly that um, you know, that which all the Buddhas teach is this, which is to cease to do what is unwholesome, to do what is wholesome, 
and to clarify or purify the mind. Nothing else. So all of what we're engaged in is in a sense mind transformation. Transforming our minds from something which is going to give rise to dukkha because we act unwholesomely. Identifying that which is the unwholesome and changing our minds or turning it toward that which is wholesome. So at the very foundation, and I'll touch on this later in the week, but at the very foundation of all meditative practices is looking at our ethical conduct. This is the foundation. Without ethical conduct, meditation itself becomes a fairly futile exercise. So in other words, we have to look at our ethical conduct and our meditative practice will feed in and hopefully awaken us to ever more possibilities of more wholesome behaviour. So the Buddhist path aims at this mind transformation, turning our mind from a mind which creates dukkha, not just for ourselves but for others. As I often jokingly say, we can't keep dukkha to ourselves, we like to spread it around. <laughs> you know, to try and make others as miserable as we are. I joke. <laughs> But you know what I mean by that. We do tend to spread it around. Um, and by turning our minds towards the wholesome, by turning our minds towards more positive forms of behaviour, more positive forms of thought, then again perhaps we can spread that around as opposed to the misery, to the unpleasantness, the unhappiness, and to that friction that we experience in life. So we're moving away from conditioned forms of behaviour. So it's very attendant upon us to actually examine what is going on for us. And this means, in a sense, having a very, very open eye to see the what is going on. Now a retreat like this, and any retreat you enter into, is the ideal place for that to happen. Um, and rather than a terribly miserable experience, it should actually be a fairly joyful experience. Yeah. To actually have the time and the space, I don't say it's not going to be difficult, but the time and the space to enter into that inquiry of seeing some of our conditioned behaviour, our conditioned responses. Because in the retreat situation, we find ourselves stripped of much of which covers that over, covers over for us, you know, the reasons why we behave in such and such a, such a way, the reasons and almost mechanisms we have for avoidance of certain facets of our mental continuum. So in the retreat situation, we find ourselves in a pared-down situation of you know, obviously in going house of not speaking most of the time, apart from questions in the evening, of doing lots of meditation. And this is all to aid the inquiry. In a sense, it's to minimise the chances for escape. Now, I don't say that's going to be easy. It is difficult. The whole path, in a sense, is replete with a difficulty which I call an enjoyable difficulty. A difficulty which takes you into the heart of mind rather than actually cutting you off from it. A difficulty which allows us to taste some of the stillness 
and also some of the marvel of what it means to be as well. So this inquiry into dukkha, where we start from on the Buddhist path, is not meant to be an inquiry into simply misery. It's meant to be an inquiry into that which can liberate us from those conditions of unsatisfactoriness, of misery, of pain, of anguish and depression, and all of the catalogue of words that I could use to describe this space, from its most minuscule element, that simple sense of you know, just friction in daily life, of irritation, of somebody not being the way that you want them to be, or things not being quite the way that you want them, to this sense of almost the out-and-out suffering um, that's attendant upon, for example, loss and tragedy and grief and all of these things. So it's that inquiry which takes us into the conditions for its removal, for its dropping, for us to move into much more skillful and wholesome ways of being. But to do that, we have to be very clear about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And at the very heart of this whole inquiry, of course, is the inquiry into impermanence, into the nature of the evanescent nature of experience, the evanescent nature of the world, the way it arises and falls, and everything arises and passes away. So hence, part of the definition of dukkha is the dukkha of anitya, or the dukkha of impermanence. The dukkha which is associated with wanting things to be permanent, but they don't remain the same. No matter how hard we try to stabilise, to fix, to fixate even, things will not remain the same. Something I said almost mantrically last night to you is that things will not remain the same. However, dukkha is far wider than just impermanence, although that is a vast element of it. Dukkha is there in our relationship to simple things such as physical pain, mental pain as well. It's there in its almost disguised form in what the Buddhist tradition refers to as the Dukkha of Avidya, or the Dukkha of Ignorance. In a sense, not even knowing that you have this sense of dissatisfaction, that you are, in a way, in scare quotes, suffering. So the inquiry is into every facet of life, every facet of our being, and rather than I say than making us miserable, this actually should cheer us up. <laughs> because it's an inquiry into that which can liberate us from conditioned behaviour. Because our normal behavioural responses are simply reactions. They're not actions. They are conditioned responses. So if I don't get what I want, I become miserable or I become dissatisfied. Let me go back a second into how the Buddha defines Dukkha. The first thing he makes very clear about Dukkha is that Dukkha isn't something which is part of the phenomena we experience. It's something that we bring into the world. So, impermanence itself isn't by its very nature Dukkha. It isn't by its very nature Dukkha. 
It invites very major suffering or unsatisfactory. Impermanence is tautologically impermanent. That is all. Pain is pain, if it's physical or mental. It doesn't have to be dukkha. Dukkha is a mental component. Dukkha is something we bring and add to a basic happening, be it impermanent or be it something like a physical pain. This is made very clear, and again, some of you might want to look this up, it's in a little sutta in something called the Sangita Nikaya, the connected discourse of the Buddha called the Sutta of the Stone Splinter. And it talks about the Buddha walking along the road and for various reasons, and he steps on a shard of stone, a splinter of stone. And the stone enters his foot, and it's very clear in Pali that it says that this stone splinter entering his foot causes an immense pain, but no dukkha. So in other words, dukkha, it's very clear from that example, is something we bring to the experience. It's something that we add to a basic happening. So there is impermanence, there is pain. And the Buddhist tradition would be extremely unrealistic if it said you were going to do away with physical pain. Um, that's evidenced very much by the Buddha's death, and the Buddha dies in a great deal of pain, but obviously not experiencing dukkha. So this is something we bring into life. And I suppose a very simple question, and again I will joke about it, but a very simple question is, um, how do you like life, with or without additives? <laughs> you know. Because we can keep on adding dukkha to all our experiences. In other words, we can generate dukkha out of a basic occurrence. Out of a simple pain, we can generate this mental sense of dissatisfaction, a railing against the world. Out of the fact that the world itself is simply impermanent, i.e. that it arises and it passes away, and all things will arise and pass away, we create dukkha. So that's the simple question I think we have to ask ourselves at the very inception of any inquiry. Do we want to keep on adding that to life? Because life doesn't have to be that. Now the very simple definition of life with the additive and without the additive is, well, with the additive it's sangsara. That is it. And actually, the word in the original language in Pali and Sanskrit, the word sangsara itself, like most words in Buddhist languages, is a verb. It indicates a condition, a way of being. And so actually we are sangsara-ing. We are, in a sense, creating a condition of being which has as its attendant feeling tone, dukkha over and over and over again and we do it in a beautifully cyclical manner as we continue to rail against the same sort of things that we rail against continue to get dissatisfied with the same sort of things that we get dissatisfied with as a good actual exercise for you to do to look at your senses of dissatisfaction as they arise in a day and see if they've ever risen previously because you will find in general that whoops, there it goes again is the basic feeling behind most of them 
because it's something we do in a conditioned, almost automatic reflex reaction to various phenomena. Somebody does something, we get irritated. There we are seeing something in a shop window and we're salivating for it. In other words, we are simply reacting towards things. Um, so the dukkha that's arising is generally out of the form of unreflective non-awareness. In other words, we're not reflecting, we're not seeing, we're not creating any possibility for action, but simply for reaction. So our condition one is, a, is in ordinary, average, everyday life is being reactive again and again and again and again until you do something about it. And remember, it's only you that can do something about it through clarity. In other words, by seeing what is arising, by seeing, for example, our conditioned responses towards impermanence, to things not remaining the same, to a partner changing their likes into something which they dislike or their dislikes into something they like or to something within your workplace which doesn't remain the same, or whatever. In other words, all forms of change that we are confronted with and that we resist. And most of that resistance, not all, there are exceptions, and I think most of you all be aware of exceptions to this, but in most cases we resist changes which are inevitable and we can do nothing about whatsoever. So this inquiry into Dukkha is an inquiry into our conditioned responsiveness, the way that we are conditioned or have conditioned ourselves over a whole lifetime. Some of that conditioning is external to us, comes from our societies, comes from the kind of narratives which are given to us about success and failure, for example, within the Western world. But many of them are generated by our own life history. Our ways of dealing with situations that have arisen in our lifetime, from childhood all the way through. So in a sense, what we're doing in engaging in this inquiry is beginning to unpack the contents of something that we might want to call unconscious. We're beginning to let it raise itself to consciousness so that we can acknowledge it fully and wave it on its way. Let it go. And that's what we're doing. Hence the reason why it's so, so important and why we'll spend a few days on developing some forms of tranquility. Because until the mind can become still like a pool, it can't begin to reflect or begin to allow to arise what is going to arise that needs our full attention. Our full attention. And without that concentration, that ability to hold something, we're going to find it very, very difficult to examine the what is going on for us. But dukkha is the problem, and dukkha is something which we're immersed in. Impermanence itself is something which we create dukkha out of. Impermanence, as I suggested last night and said many, many times, is ubiquitous. It's all around us. It's there continuously. 
arising and passing away, arising and passing away. Just think of how many thoughts in a day, probably just today, have arisen and passed away. There is nothing even permanent with our own continuum that is fixed and stable within us. Everything within ourselves arises and passes away. So the very mind with which we're doing this inquiry is not a fixed entity. It's a process which is changing continuously. The world around us, as I again said last night, doesn't remain the same. It changes continuously. Now, we can rail against that. As I was saying earlier on, we can rail against it or we can begin to learn to flow. One of the phrases I used earlier on today was that we can learn to flow and that is coming out of a still mind. Out of stillness arises the ability to flow and by that I mean to go with what is, to move with what is and thereby not create dukkha out of the inevitable, out of change, out of impermanence. Now the Buddha readily identifies, of course, that there is a cause um, to this dukkha. I suspect that without identifying the cause, none of us would be sitting here trying to do anything about it, because it is the very fact that there is a cause or causes, when we start to really examine it, that allows for the possibility of change and the possibility for liberation. And what we're really talking about here in terms of liberation is nothing other than liberation from continuously patterned forms of existence. That all of our existence is patterned in ways that we can understand we can begin to understand it and that patterning we call dependent origination and I'll probably start to examine that with you tomorrow night because this is the patterning of our day-to-day existence our minute-to-minute existence actually then once we understand that we can find ways of breaking the chain of dependences allowing freedom to arise out of it the freedom that arises is the freedom from conditioned patterned behaviour. And actually, that goes by another name, one which I'm sure you're all familiar with, because it's one that has passed into the English language, and that's called nirvana. Actually, it's just called nirvana. It sounds like a noun, but it isn't. It's another verb. So, one can move from sangsaring into nirvana-ing or nirvana In other words, from two ways of being. It's very made very clear in a lot of the texts, particularly in Mahayana texts, the great 2nd century Mahayana thinker and practitioner, Nagarjuna, for example, said, Sangsara and Nirvana are identical. They are not two places. They are not two separate things. They are two ways of being. They are two ways of being in this world. And I suppose, again, it becomes a question for ourselves. Do you want to continue Sangsaring, or do you like a little bit of nirvana occasionally? <laughs> I know which op- what option I'm going for um, but nibbanaing is, is a possibility and it's a possibility that's identified by understanding the causes of our behaviour why we are so attached to 
forms of behavior which give rise to unwholesome consequences and we do it again and again and again and without it sounding too moralistic I do want to keep pointing out to you and I will do this over the week that is not because we are bad people because there's no need for us to get into the western thing of guilt about this because no Asian language has a word for guilt um, they only invented it when Christian missionaries arrived. <laughs> so guilt is not part of those traditions at all. Guilt is a very unhelpful, con- a very unhelpful concept which we carry around with us. Um, and so even, for example, meditation, we can end up feeling guilty about. Meditation itself can become a pretty miserable experience <coughs> through guilt that all these things are arising and I should be here with perfect calmness of mind. I've had that thought. (laughs) Here I am drifting away from my object of meditation uh, with all these thoughts going on. In other words, it's simply the process of meditation. That's what goes on. Uh, That is it. Um, Yet, somehow we can import the notion of guilt and make the whole experience of meditation a pretty miserable experience itself, when we have no need to do that whatsoever. So identifying the causes will lead to us being able to liberate ourselves from behaviour. Now the first proximate cause that the Buddha identifies is extremely important, because in a sense um, it covers a tremendous range of our activities, is something he calls craving or desire. Craving is probably more accurate a translation. The actual word means an unquenchable thirst. The word is tanha. An unquenchable thirst. In other words, when we have this form of craving, no matter what is brought before us, it will not quench our thirst whatsoever. It will not slake our thirst and make us happy. Um, and we can see this particularly in relationship to materiality. One of the things, of course, that the Western world does is it offers a tremendous range of goodies. (laughs) All, so the advertising people tell us, are always going to make us much more satisfied and a lot more happy. Have you noticed that? They're always telling you how fulfilled you're going to be by the the purchase of this particular good. Um, Well, as you know, it's a mythology. Um, The happiness that arises probably arises for a couple of minutes at least. before you're on to the next thing, um, which the advertising people are also selling you. Uh, that's the Western world. Everything is being sold. However, there is this disposition, of course, that, that thinks, there is this state of mind that thinks, of course, that we are going to make ourselves happy by purchasing these things. You know, materiality is the most obvious thing, but if we have all these things, we will somehow be happy. It's a big mythology um, because, as I say, in a sense, that desire, that craving, has no terminal point. It has no end, and that's what the Buddha means by it being an unquenchable thirst. It has no absolute end. It will just go on and on and on and on. And if you think about it, life could be one unending series of purchases. (laughs) 
one vast gigantic shopping spree um, but with a tremendous range of dissatisfaction running through it as well. <laughs> that is the sad point about it, is that the dissatisfaction is attendant upon even the achievement and the getting of what you think is going to make you happy. Again, it's referring back to something I said earlier on, which is this misplaced sense that something is going to make you happy, something external is going to make you happy. Now, it might not just be materiality, it might be, in some sense, what I call material acquisitiveness, acquisitiveness transferred onto something else. It might be the attainment of some position, some degree of power. It might be the attainment of somebody you think is going to make you happy. You know, that's a great mythology, if ever there was one. You know, that somebody else is going to make you happy. Somebody's going to provide the conditions for your happiness. You know, so the Buddha is immediately identifying that the source of um, our happiness is not to be found without. There is always the thought, of course, that somewhere out there there is something that's going to make me happy. There's something that's going to give me contentment, something that's going to give me pleasure. The French poet Rambeau had a wonderful phrase for it. He calls it, life is elsewhere. Yeah, there's always life elsewhere. I'm just not participating yet at this point in time. If only I could find out where the party was going on. <laughs> I would be happy. <laughs> you know, it was that sense. And what, of course, the Buddha is indicating is in a way, life is no other place than here now, in this now moment. And this is where the happiness arises. Even he says, I cannot give you, I cannot provide you with nirvana. I cannot give you awakening, I cannot give you liberation. Only you can provide that for yourself. So craving itself is the most immediately identifiable cause of our situation. But craving runs deep. It doesn't just run in the, if you like, the arteries and the veins of craving for material things. It runs in much, much more subtle fashion. And the Buddha identifies these as the craving in a sense to be. Some degree of permanency about myself. Something to go on. Now that can take the form of fully fledged you know, desire for immortality, which many other traditions, obviously non-Buddhist traditions, particularly theistic religious traditions, offer out the hope of, of the desire for something which is immortal, something which is timeless, something which is outside the sway of impermanence which is going to go on. And that is the desire which the Buddha calls Bhavatana, the desire to be. Now that can go on in many, again, even more subtle forms than that. That's the most seemingly obvious one. Um, but it can go on in the form of you know, just the desire to perpetuate yourself in some way. It might be through your children. It might be through your good work. It might be even down to what's chiseled on your tombstone. <laughs> 
in some way which will add permanently to you. Again, the Buddha is saying this is shita, that this desire to be. In other words, the desire to be, in a sense, senses, is our desire to perpetuate ourselves in whatever way possible. It might be from that fully fledged version of trying to desire immortality, or it might simply be the minimal, as I say, kind of scraping on the tombstone. But anything in between that you know, could be seen as a desire to perpetuate ourselves. So that's us on a good day. You know, desire to be forever. And then there's what I call us on a bad day, which is the desire not to be at all. This is when you get out of bed in the morning on the wrong side. And life is a struggle, and everything about it seems problematic. And you wish you had never been born. Uh, in a way, this is a desire not to be. And this is actually um, a craving. A craving not to be. A wish, in a sense, to be obliterated. To have the burden of life removed from one forever, completely, absolutely. You know, so you have two different forms. You have the different <coughs> form, you have the form of wishing to perpetuate yourself and wishing not to perpetuate yourself. And then there is all that stuff about wanting the things of the world, the desire for things and people and power and attainment and all of those things. And actually, bear in mind, of course, that even spiritual practice itself can end up in that one, in the desire to become something, the desire to attain something. It becomes a form of what uh, the Tibetan writer Trungpa described as spiritual material itself. So the traps are there all the way through in terms of craving. Now you might think these of course are very separate entities. You know, you on a good day, you on a bad day, you most of the time. (laughs) Where actually we probably swing through those in a day in terms of the different aspects of those three forms of craving. And we'll touch on a little bit more of this during the week. But those three forms of craving are the desire in a way to either obliterate the self, perpetuate the self, or get lost in materiality and the craving for sensual pleasures, because that's actually what it's called, kamatanga, or the desire for sensuality, the desire for sensual goodness itself. So we can find ourselves in any mode or any permutation of those and they're not mutually exclusive, they interact together. Um, They are in a sense, even particularly the latter two, are what Freud identifies for example as the death drive and the drive of libido, the drive, the erotic drive itself. So these are not completely unknown even to Western psychology. So craving is the most immediate cause, but of course craving itself is traceable back to other elements, and I'll go into those starting probably tomorrow night, to other elements which give rise to our forms of conditioned behaviour. However, let's not underestimate the craving itself as the immediate identifiable cause of much of the misery that we suffer. Most of it is about again, misplaced desire. The desire for something which is not going to give you happiness, although we invest it with a degree of importance, 
and a degree of stability that we think can make it deliver. But of course, even if we get, and I don't deny this, and the Buddhist tradition never denies this, in fact it sees no problem with it, that many of the things, for example, if we take sensual pleasure, will deliver exactly that. They will deserve, deliver pleasure. And there's nothing wrong with pleasure. But of course, pleasure itself is unstable. It arises and it passes away. You know, and the pleasure that you get from an object or something at one moment is different from the pleasure that you get in another moment. And it might be on a diminishing scale, for example. And eventually it ceases to give you pleasure altogether. But there's nothing wrong in the enjoyment, let's put it in another term, in the enjoyment of that thing whilst it lasts. But of course the tendency, again, and this is our fear of impermanence, is to want to stabilise that. To want to grasp after it. To hold on to it. To see if I can get, if I can almost wring it dry in terms of exactly the same kinds of pleasures that I got from it. When I first acquired the object or first heard a tune or whatever the sensual pleasure might be. Um, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard actually went through a wonderful little experiment in a book called Repetition to show how there was no such thing as repetition. Um, he said he went to a, a performance of um, Don Giovanni, he was a great opera fan of Don Giovanni, he went to Don Giovanni. He went to the opera house in Copenhagen and heard the performance of Don Giovanni, which he was absolutely ecstatic about. It gave him such huge amounts of pleasure that he went back the next night booked himself into exactly the same book, in the same box, did exactly the same thing, dressed up in exactly the same clothes, watched exactly the same performance at exactly the same time of day and found he didn't get the same amount of pleasure out of it. <laughs> now that's obviously a very extreme example of the fact that nothing will deliver in exactly the same way. And that in a sense is indicative of things not remaining the same that they have changed. What has changed is not necessarily just the performance itself in something like that, but the mental attitude with which we come at it as well. Because the mental attitude now which we're coming after, at it with, is not just craving for the pleasure that you achieved before, but a desire to stabilise it by attachment, by grasping after it. And that's what we tend to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with pleasure, there's nothing wrong with enjoyment, and you know, too many people in Buddhist circles have these very poor faces and they oh, we shouldn't have pleasure, <laughs> most of the things like that. That's nonsense. Take pleasure, but don't try to grasp after it. Don't try to stabilise it. Enjoy things while they last. Almost like, and I'll finish on this, almost like the cherry blossom that I mentioned last night. The peak of Japanese aesthetics, absolute beauty while it lasts. We'll find any way of avoiding what is, usually, and um, what we're confronted with, until it becomes too late to avoid it, when it becomes glaringly obvious, and it presses upon us with some degree of urgency. And often, unfortunately, of course, that happens in illness and towards the end of life, um, with the onset of death. Now, in identifying the immediate cause of being one of craving, or perhaps a better word to use here is the word desire.
desire, he is identifying one of the three primary aspects of our experience, which condition all of our unwholesome behaviour in this world. Um, the other forms, of which I'm sure you're well aware of, I'm going to give a different, slightly different translation to them. The other is aversion, because with desire or craving, we become aware, of course, that we actually desire or are craving to avoid a tremendous range of experience. Um, trying to absolutely absent ourselves from certain dimensions of life. In other words, we wish or we desire to avoid them. And at the very kind of heart of the problem is the problem of ignorance. Usually translated as delusion. Ignorance is not a bad translation of the Sanskrit Pali term, which is avidya. Avidya literally means to ignore something, to overlook it. If you take the etymological origin of the word ignorance in English, it literally means to overlook, to have it right in front of your nose and keep looking over the top of it. <coughs> I would kind of say, of course, that uh, impermanence is one of those things that we completely ignore. We overlook it until it really presses upon us, um, usually in an unfortunate way. So at the very root of the problem is the problem of ignorance. Now, this ignorance itself is not just an ignoring, but in a way it's a not wanting to know, so it's tied also to aversion. We don't actually want to know the way things really are. Where it comes from, the Buddha doesn't wish to answer. He just says it's there. <laughs> we deal with the problem. Um, the problem is that we have this ignorance and therefore we have to deal with it. We have to deal with the aversion and we have to deal with the craving or the greed or the desire that we all experience. Now in terms of our normal feeling tone of life, and actually we divide life up and this gives rise in effect to the way that we experience it in terms of our desires that, or that which we wish to avoid. Traditionally this is known as Vedana. Vedana is feeling and, and before you get emotional it doesn't mean feeling in that sense in the technical term. It simply means a bare sensational tone which everything has. And so Vedana is that which precipitates grasping and craving. Vedana is simply the sheer pleasurable experience of something, the liking of something, or the disliking of something, or the neither liking or disliking of something. That is all it is. And in a way, very simplistically, that covers a fair chunk of our psychology. If you think about it, there's not much in between. You either like it, you dislike it, or you neither like nor dislike it. And <clears throat> in a way, all of our patterns of like, dislike, and neither like nor dislike are conditioned patterns. Fear, of course, is a response, and fear of impermanence is a response that arises out of aversion to what it is. Fear is, is linked, as I'm going to go on to explain, also to the concept of self, which most of us hold in some way or another, in some deep, deep, buried form. 
So out of that arises, out of that simple pose that we experience, and this, if you like, is preceding thought, almost, um, because it's a bare sensation that we experience on contact with something. That is all. We contact something, and unfortunately, of course, being the kind of embodied beings we are, with the faculties that we have, we can't avoid contacting things. And we hear things, we see things, and of course, given all our usual five sense faculties, we also have a sixth one, which is that we are contacting constantly mental dimensions of our being. The thoughts that arise and pass away. And I should imagine you're becoming quite familiar with, after doing two the solid days of meditation, there are a lot of thoughts arising and passing away, and they all of them generally have a feeling tone attached to them. Um, which is why, of course, in the meditations I've emphasized neither attachment nor repression to those thoughts, but seeing them as they are and letting them be, letting them go, befriending them in a way. So this is our experience. Our experience is one of being immersed in the immediacy of sensation which gives rise to a degree of feeling which is labelled or categorised I wouldn't say labelled actually because labelled really means a conceptual process and this is not a conceptual process. In many ways we can't help feel what we feel. But, of course, conditioned responses mean that we act in particular ways given certain tones that we come into contact with. So when there is like, there is immediate grasping. When there is dislike, there is immediate repulsion from it. In other words, there is a kind of movement towards or a movement away from the phenomena that presents itself. And then, of course, in a way, there's a great bundle of delusion, ignorance, not seeing, which constitutes the neither like nor dislike, because we simply don't see it in many ways. And probably, and I don't know if many of you have done meditations on this, but you will find, of course, that is one of the most difficult areas to get into our sense of neither like nor dislike. Often when we practice, for example, metta meditation, in metta meditation you're often required to say or conjure up for yourself images of somebody you like and somebody you dislike and somebody you neither like nor dislike. And that's usually the one that most people have a problem with. Um, Because I can recall to mind very strongly somebody they like or dislike, but find it very difficult to bring to mind uh, this kind of neutral category, that's almost a category of persons who you overlook. So there's a tremendous range of our experience, of sort of stuff that's going on for us which we overlook. We simply do not see it. However, in terms of the two most basic poles of our experience, then these give rise immediately to craving. And the craving that I talked about last night. Desire, as I say, is sometimes a better word to use. Because in a way we desire that, we desire to avoid certain things, probably as I think I indicated last night, more than we desire the things that we really want. Um, in many ways this is Freud's definition of the pleasure principle. The pleasure principle is about avoidance of pain most of the time, more than it is about pleasure as such. So <clears throat> that is immediately producing the feeling, these feelings of desire and we move conditioned, we move towards or we move away from. 
In other words, in our ordinary everydayness, and bringing it right back home in what we do ordinarily, we are simply pulled towards certain things and repulsed by other things. And these are conditioned responses. And it's kind of push-pull arrangement, being pushed and pulled throughout life. Now, because this is part of samsara, because this is part of circular being, then of course there is very little choice in the matter. There's very little freedom in the whole affair. And in traditional depictions of this kind of round of what I call circular being or the circularity that we engage in in terms of our daily existence, and by that circularity I indicate circularity of thought and circularity of action, that we do the same things, and I think I mentioned this last night, we do the same things again and again because we think the same things again and again. The same or similar, but not identical. They're always modified, they're always changing. They themselves, of course, even these thoughts themselves are impermanent. They don't remain the same. They don't remain identical. Even one's feelings of repulsion or repugnance about something do not remain exactly the same. It can increase, it can decrease, it can vacillate, in other words. Our feelings of like for something go through, through tremendous vacillations where it doesn't remain stable. And they can literally change from minute to minute, from hour to hour. So those thoughts themselves are not stable. Nothing within them is stable. So that's our immediate experience of being pushed and pulled by these two poles of attraction and repulsion. Now, just to indicate this, of course, that within the iconography, and particularly the iconography of Tibetan Buddhism, where, of course, this circularity is depicted in something called the Bala Chakra. The Bala Chakra is the wheel of becoming, or the wheel of life, as it's often described. But it's a wheel of becoming, but it's a bounded circle. No freedom, or very little freedom, lies within its circularity. This is why in the iconography of the Buddha stands outside, often indicating and pointing at the Bhava Chakra. Indicating, of course, the freedom in a sense lies outside the circularity of behaviour. In other words, our given propensity to behave in certain ways, given certain stimuli. I often joke about this, and again, many of you might have heard me say it, because there have been a course of this before, but in a way, we're rather Pavlovian. In other words, given the right response, there we are salivating about it. Yeah, in other words, ding our bell, and there we go. Yeah, there is not a lot of freedom within it. And so, the whole purpose of this practice um, the overcoming of fear, the overcoming of fear of impermanence, the overcoming of our repulsion towards our fear towards all forms of things, as well as our kind of immediate knee-jerk reaction in terms of our attraction towards certain things, is to break the cycle of responsiveness. Or actually, it's not responsiveness so much as simply reactivity. From this perspective, of course, um, I'm going to say something right, rather derogatory here. From this perspective, of course, we're all compulsive neurotics, <laughs> from a Buddhist point of view. Um, we all engage in compulsive neurotic behaviour. Um, we might not be substance addicted or anything else, uh, but we're addicted in various forms. 
Um, you see this particularly when you come on retreat and you find out the things that you think you can't do without. <laughs> and so it's a good way of actually examining that which you're addicted to uh, when it's stripped away from you to a certain degree by coming into a retreat situation like this. So that's the litmus test in a way is to our, the, the depth of our addiction to something is do you suffer when you're deprived of it? Do you find it unsatisfactory when it's not there? Um, in other words, that is the simple litmus test about the depth of our addiction. So the problem is, of course, that we are all addicted in this way um, and we become addicted to that which we dislike as well. And in fact, one can say that one of the big, big problems, um, going right back to what I was talking last, about last night, is actually that we're addicted to various forms of suffering. We're addicted to various forms of unsatisfactoriness. Now that might sound strange, but it's almost the kind of situation where better the suffering we know than one we don't. In other words, I'm familiar with this one. <laughs> Don't put me in another situation where I'm not quite sure whether I'm going to get another whole load of it, which I'm unfamiliar with. So I'd rather stick with this one. And now I'm putting it in very kind of banal terms, but it's in a way this is what's going on in our addiction to giving up certain things that we actually know are detrimental to our health. And what I mean that is the health of our being in this world. So, to give up, recognize, really means to recognize, in a way, the depth of our boundedness, the depth of our entrapment. We become like a caged animal who occasionally sees glimpses of freedom through a bar. You're in your cage and you pad around your cage, and occasionally you just get a glimpse or an insight, let's use a Buddhist term, you get an insight of freedom that lies outside this bounded nature of our entrapped experience. Now again, you can only test out this in terms of your own mind, um, but entrapment, it appears to me, often is one of the basic conditions of our ordinary everydayness. Is this feeling of entrapment, the feeling of being trapped by circumstances, the feeling of being trapped by behaviour, the feeling of being trapped by our addictions. And I say they don't even have to be substance-type addictions, but the addictions that we have to which we are bound. Now the reason for this, of course, is that that sense of craving, and this is the immediate resultant, in a way, is the immediate fruit of this craving, this desire, is attachment. Because we become attached even as I say, to our states of unsatisfactoriness, to our sufferings, to our miseries. We even become attached to our ailments. Um, and they, of course, become convenient identities for us. We build identities out of whatever material is at hand. And often those identities are built, for example, out of our absolute likes and dislikes. Um, we build it out of life experiences to which we cling desperately and try to solidify. We build it out of relationships and everything else. So we're trying to construct identity, perhaps where no identity or solid sense of identity really prevails whatsoever. We're constructing it 
and we put it into narrative form and tell stories to ourselves about our lives and we become trapped even by those narratives which are narratives of identity and so what we're talking about is in the practice is a theme which identifies this going on you can't begin to give up what you don't know which in a sense you haven't palpated, which you haven't felt and experienced. So this is why the, the cornerstone, the keystone of a lot of Buddhist practice, I'm, I'm saying not entirely, but the keystone of much of Buddhist practice, of course, is meditation, or more correctly, cultivation, vāvā. The ways of cultivating insights, the ways of cultivating tranquility, obviously what we've been doing the past few days, the ways of cultivating compassion, um, and I'm going to talk about that certainly probably tomorrow night, compassion and kindness, because actually we become too fixated in these traditions often on having a calm mind, having a mind which is developing insight or panya, um, wisdom as it's usually translated. And forget, of course, that one of the other major, major dimensions and ways that we can know the world and the very profound way of knowing the world is through kindness um, and also through compassion and through empathy, or another word that tends to get forgotten, but it's there in the canon, it's there in the early teachings. The Buddha emphasizes all these as ways of liberation, ways of knowing the world. So please do not feel hidebound by having to develop wisdom and tranquility and all of this, because there are many ways apparently that the Buddha appears to offer to being to develop liberation, and these include directly compassion and kindness. And of course, those immediately when we start talking about them put us into a world with others, a world where the other is important. The other is important in the development of compassion, the other is important in the development of kindness. However, coming back uh, to our situation, our bounded situation, which we need to have some degree of insight into, even to be able to affect the development of compassion, the development of kindness, is to see this degree of entrapment that we have. We can't move out towards others, we can't begin to really experience the depth of another's pain, misery, and satisfaction when we are literally full of ourselves. And that is one of our situations. Uh, we are full of ourselves, we are turned round looking into our own neurotic fears and anxieties and everything else, and in a way we can't help that. That's part of our conditioning process. And again, it's nothing to feel guilty about. There's no need for it suddenly, oh, I'm like this, I've got to feel guilty about it. There's no reason for that to immediately occur. Guilt is not a response which is wholesome or useful in this particular situation. Now, our entrapment is one of being trapped by that which we hold on to. And I've often likened this, and again, many of you have heard me speak about this before, but I've often likened this to the thing they use for trapping monkeys, um, the monkey trap which is a thing that generally has a very thin neck and at the bottom of it is a bowl into which something is put like a, a banana or a piece of fruit that the monkey wants. What the monkey will do 
It'll put its hand in, reach down for what is at the bottom of the bowl, grab it, and it's caught. Because it won't let go of what it's got hold of. And all it's got to do to get away is let go of what it's got. That's all. So it can't pull its hand out with a closed fist. And interestingly, of course, that the Sanskrit Pali word of Padana, which is the word that's used for attachment, actually literally has the connotation of a closed fist, of a not letting go at all. And one of the other meanings of it is something which stokes the fires of greed, hatred and delusion as well. So our attachment stokes the fire, keeps us bound to various forms of behaviour. Our attachment is what's going to lead us to future becoming in certain ways. And I'll go into that probably another night. But that's our situation of being trapped by our likes and our dislikes, by what we have and what we try to avoid, and all of the things to which we cling desperately in search of a sense of identity in search of the sense of self. The sad thing about it from a Buddhist perspective, of course, is that the search is futile anyway. Because if we're looking for something which is permanent as a self, then we won't find anything other than change. And in fact, in one of the texts in the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, to understand the arising and falling of the five conditions of what it means to be a self, result in liberation or unhappiness. In other words, to understand that there is only arising and falling. In other words, impermanence and arising and passing away and arising and passing away in the five constituents that make up the process that we call self. Now it's quite wrong, and I might say this to many of you who have not necessarily come across this, but it's quite wrong to say that Buddhism talks about no-self. What it talks about is what is not-self. And tries to make very clear what that, those conditions are that are not-self. But there is a self, and that we refer to a self in terms of a process, Buddhism has no problem with. And the whole of the other Buddhist teaching has no problem with. But it is a process. In other words, there's nothing fixed and stable within it. The beauty of that, of course, is, um, and I think this is the kind of message of hope, I've kind of given you gloom and doom so far, haven't I? <laughs> it's giving you the message and the ray of hope here. Um, the ray of hope that comes out of that, of course, is there is nothing fixed, there's nothing that you cling to, nothing which you try to create an identity out of, nothing is fixed irrevocably. There is no such thing, for example, as intrinsic evil within this perspective. Evil deeds are done, no doubt, but there is no such thing as something which is intrinsically unchanging within the individual. So this means, of course, that all of us can change. None of us is, you know, kind of using more kind of Christian terminology, none of us are irredeemable. Yeah. And that's the kind of message of hope that this offers. In other words, with practice, with diligence, and the suttas and the stories within all of the Buddhist traditions are full of this is you get people from all walks of life, including criminals, who attain the goal. 
to attain awakening, to wake up to the way things really are. Because there is nothing fixed. It doesn't mean that, of course, they don't experience their karma for their previous deeds, because, of course, they do. But, of course, it doesn't mean, of course, that they are shackled to that karma forever. In other words, it's not like primal sin, original sin, or something which is deeply unchanging within the individual. So this leads us into having to understand what this nature of the self is that the Buddha is talking about in order to affect this change. And really this is absolutely fundamental. Without an understanding of the nature of the self that the Buddha delineates, then I think it's very difficult to understand how the process of meditation can work and what, we're exactly, what exactly we are doing within it. Now, what the Buddha, of course, is stressing is the lack of something fixed and unchanging within our experience. And what he's meaning here is within our own individual continuum. There is no real me underlying all of this change. There is no fixed self, in other words. Such a self, of course, by its very nature, would not have to be dependent on causes and conditions. And the one thing the Buddha continuously stresses throughout all of his teachings, right up until the end, including the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, where he's talking, you know, talks about his death, he's always stressing that everything that comes to be depends on causes and conditions for its existence. Nothing comes to be ex nihilo. Nothing comes to be out of nothing. There is no such thing as a self-existing entity independent of other entities. Obviously extrapolated in the wider sense, it means that none of us are independent. Nothing is independent. In the Mahayana tradition, it gets written large in talking about the absolute interdependency of all things on everything. No word, thought, gesture is without an effect. None of us does something which doesn't affect another. And so, that is written into the very earliest of the teachings. This idea that nothing arises out of nothing and everything arises dependent on causes. In fact, this is the Buddha's recipe for awakening, for that Nibbana ring that I talked last about last night. His general recipe for existence is this happens, that happens. This ceases to happen, that ceases to happen. Quite simple. Yeah. Now, in this case, samsara comes to be because of this. When this ceases to be, samsara ceases to be. When these factors start to come into existence, the opposite to samsara occur. Now, in other words, what we were talking about is when the Buddha nirvana, when he was nirvanaing, is that in that sense he no longer depends on the causes and conditions which sustain us in our ordinary average everydayness, in that circularity of existence within, within which we exist. Dependent for most of our psychological functioning, most, not all, otherwise there would be no hope, most of our psychological functioning on greed, hatred and delusion or ignorance, aversion, and desire, putting it slightly differently. Instead, what 
are the psychological components operative in making an arahat an arahat or a Buddha a Buddha is that they're operative out of the complete opposite the absolute antithesis of those three fundamental wellsprings of ordinary, average, everyday consciousness these are of course instead of greed or desire we have generosity instead of aversion or hatred we have kindness and compassion and instead of course of delusion and ignorance we have understanding or penetrating insight what's usually referred to as wisdom but actually it's not a term that's usually used in Indian tradition it actually means understanding or insight into the way things are so as you can see there's a complete antithesis operative predominantly from one set creates samsara i.e. these are the causes which sustain this effect which we call samsara when those are eradicated when they decline when they fall away and in their place are replaced by of course their absolute antithesis then we get two different ways of being in the world two completely different ways of being in the world that is the recipe for awakening that the Buddha is talking about so even that is a causal recipe that it occurs because of something it occurs because of ceasing to do what is unwholesome and learning to do what is wholesome remember the quotation I gave you last night sounds simple doesn't it (laughs) I always say it sounds really really simple try doing it then it becomes much more difficult the whole process becomes much more difficult because we become aware that we are immured and enmeshed in ways of behaviour that no matter how good our initial intentions are we end up somehow performing what is unwholesome or unskillful actually one of the other meanings of the term is unskillful as well so understanding the self and understanding the nature and the process of the self is vitally important because most of our anxieties and most of our fears come about because of attachment to a wrong self-conception in other words we believe in something which doesn't actually exist in the way that we conceive it at all this conception um, the Buddha likens in the suttas and I think this is a wonderful image he likens it to a dog tethered to a post going round and round in circles because he can't do anything otherwise because it's got this notion of a solid self to which it's attached and it just goes round and round that notion but everything is related to me yeah. everything is attached to me you know, it's me first and me second and uh, as I heard once from some people saying at uh, Sharpton College once and uh, saying, you know, that's enough about me, um, what do you think about me? <laughs> <laughs> so it's this idea of attachment to the self which is obviously the root cause of things like fear fear arises out of the self-conception or the self-misconception, one might add so instead of this solid sense of self what the Buddha attempts to give us and I'll go into this more detail tomorrow about that I'll just lay the basics out tonight he tries to give us a sense of something which is dynamic and fluid and in process and can change
change because that's what it does anyway. Yeah. It's doing it whether you like it or not. <laughs> and actually, very little of it is under your control at all. And so the first facet, the one I think all of us mostly recognise as not being under our control, of course, is what he calls rupa, or form, body. Our bodies are not under our control. Um, if they were, we'd be able to stop the ageing process. What a nice concept. <laughs> to stop the ageing process. But of course we can't. And when we try to grasp after ourselves in terms of the body, which hopefully most of us don't, but if we're fairly narcissistic, we can end up being that way, then, of course, we're on to a loser um, because it's not going to remain the same. When you look in the mirror, things have changed. <laughs> and they will continue to change. And there's very little, including plastic surgery, which can halt the changes. Yeah. So that is one aspect of what it means to be a self, is to have this form which is changing. And it will continue to change. Everything is changing within it. I mean, the whole system, and actually early India was, uh, because of um, the way they disposed of the dead in India, often through cremation and charnel grounds and that, they had a pretty good conception of anatomy and the way the body decomposed, for example, even after death, and the way it was changing in life, um, and the processes were continued after death. Secondly, well, I've already talked about this, I've already mentioned it, so I won't go into detail, but I'll add a bit more flesh on it tomorrow night, is Vedana, is feeling, that our feelings are continuously changing. They don't remain the same either. As I usually add in parentheses, usually to the annoyance of those around you, um, because your feelings don't remain the same about anything. They're changing. So that which you like, you probably dislike. That which you dislike, you might like. And either category, you might fall into that which you neither like or dislike anymore. And that will continue to happen and change as long as you are alive and the process is going on. And there's nothing substantial to that either. It's not under your control, in other words. You know, immediately I put my hand on a hot plate. I do not say, hmm, I think I'll say I dislike that. You just dislike it. <laughs> it's hot and it burns and you want to take your hand off it immediately. You don't have a choice about it. Then we come, of course, to our discriminations, and I won't paint too much in this. Now, it's often translated as perception, so if you're familiar with this kind of analysis, you will know that it's usually described as perception. But it means much, much more, because it's actually all of our process of discriminating. The way that we discriminate anything. Yeah. The way that we use, for example, our primary um, tool for discrimination, which is language. The way that we divide the world up, we cut it up, we see things because of conceptualization. And we start off from a very narrow range of discrimination, which is childhood, and through education and language acquisition and all the other ways we build up a highly evolved sense of discriminating the world, usually for our own good, usually for our own aggrandizement of some form. And of course, often with old age and loss of memory and everything else, it drops away again. <laughs> so we move through this shifting 
shifting aspects of discrimination, discriminating the world very basically in the beginning, wider and perhaps narrowing down towards the end of life. And of course, in some awful scenarios, that can completely collapse into something like Alzheimer's, into complete snowmobiles, losing everything. But that doesn't remain the same. It doesn't cease to change throughout your lifetime. Then, of course, we have the big one, and this is one I will go into quite a lot, which is something called Sanskara, or Sankara, which are our formations, the way that we have formed our propensity to behave in certain ways, in other words, our conditioned karmic responses to things in life, the way that we have built up ways of dealing with the world. And those don't remain the same because obviously everything which is projected onto the world in terms of our process of discrimination and our formation is then interjected back into it again and changed according to the circumstances into which they're being projected. So they don't remain the same either. So they are in dynamic flux. And then we've got poor old consciousness at the end of it. And consciousness itself is always changing because it's nothing. Consciousness always has an object in Buddhist thought. It always depends on something for its existence. The consciousness and world arise simultaneously, and if you wanted to list all those five faculties, which I mentioned, and again I'll mention them tomorrow night in a bit more detail, then what we see is, well, consciousness has as its object all of the above. In other words, we are conscious of our bodies, we are conscious of our feelings, we are conscious of our discriminations, and of course we are conscious of our ways of dealing with the world in terms of our formation. And so that is our world for us. And that is actually the self. Now, any one of those five aspects is grasped after being a self, in other words, attempted to see, be seen as something solid, will only intensify dukkha for us. In other words, if you wake up and want to see yourself in the mirror as the same person you were yesterday, in a way, in terms of our bodily condition, then you're on to, again, that loser. Because it will never come back to you in the same way. And remember, perhaps this is a thought to finish with today, in terms of what I have to say, is that every moment is unrepeated. When we look at ourselves, at that moment, an unrepeatable moment, when we see the world, that is an unrepeatable moment. When we experience anything that is unrepeatable, it will not return in the same way. That is the true meaning of impermanence. That nothing is repeatable and nothing is identical. Nothing will come back in the same way. Now we can make dukkha out of this. Or we can cease to make dukkha out of it. And of course, the whole experiment with meditation, the whole experiment with insight, and the whole experiment with developing compassion and kindness towards ourselves and others, is about the decrease of dukkha. It's about the decrease of this unsatisfactoriness, this friction with the world. And the best description I ever had of this was given to me by one of Dalai Lama's teachers, who said that dukkha was like rubbing your arm slowly against a brick wall. That's how the way it was. It was friction that didn't start off terribly painful but ended up lacerating you in some way. And so we can either opt 
through insight, through understanding and through compassion to let go of our conditioned responses by actually seeing those conditioned responses clearly or in a sense we can opt to do nothing and thereby increase the chances of dukkha. And this can occur throughout life and it can occur into death as well, into the death process. And I want to finish with just a reading. This is not a Buddhist reading at all. And uh, I read this to my group of Sharpens quite recently. And I think it's a, quite a powerful little bit of writing. It comes from a book that was recently published, or recently translated into English, by a Swedish author called Ulla Karin Lindquist, who apparently was a Swedish television presenter, who suddenly, I think about three years ago, was diagnosed with an extremely aggressive form of motor neuron disease, and, and literally given a death sentence. Um, that she would not live. And this was kind of her notes towards the end before she died about uh, the whole process of dying and what she was going through. And what was so uplifting about this was that she discovered Buddhism without ever having to mention the word um, because of her approach to not making dying dukkha at all. And I'll just read you a couple of um, pieces from it. And the first one was about her whole attitude. And it's not terribly complexly written or poetically written or anything, but it's very stark in their observations. She said, I'm going to die of ALS, which is a particular form of metaneuron disease. If nothing unpredictable happens, uh, and there are two roads I can take. One is to lie down and be bitter and wait for the end. The other is to make something worthwhile, worthwhile of the misfortune. See it in a positive light. However banal that might sound, my road, the one I choose, is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future for me. There is only a bright present. That is all. Children live like this, only for the present. Nothing coming afterwards. And therefore I laugh like a child. And the other little extract I'll kind of leave you with, uh, and again, it's about the present moment and the way that we can live it, and we can live it without creating dukkha, is actually from one of her children, who she tries to explain to her children that she is going to die, and, and uh, they've had great difficulty obviously taking us on board, and one of her child is about age seven at this point. She um, says, Gustav comes and stands beside my bed, and he says to her, do you write all the time, Mommy? It takes such a long time, I reply. I only write with two fingers now, because she's losing all control over her bodily function. Uh, Mommy, I'm a miniature human being. What? You're big and I'm little. No, Gustav, you're big. You have your whole life in front of you, the future. Now it's me who's getting smaller. Mommy, every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. Where have you heard that? Nowhere. I just made it up. And he carries on. You have hundreds of thousands of lives left, Mummy. Every second is a life, I simply echo. I was about to leave you without seeing Okay. It's time to open it up to some questions. Um, for about 10 15 minutes, and then we can have a break.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.